This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mania. And I'm Luc Olivier Dumoulin. And our topic this week is... Tonight, uh, I'll be doing uh, another mini topics episode. Uh, so I'll be uh, re- talking again about two topics that happened in the... I would say one in last episodes. I have so much more stuff to say about Final Fantasy VII that I have some notes left. And also I'll be tackling some of my notes regarding RX Swift in my last Swift episode. Sweet. But first, I have some follow-up. Um, on episode 78, Luc Olivier talked about his experience watching Twitch for the first time. And Ooh. I discovered something Twitch-related that I wanted to share on the podcast. That is a website called LonelyStreams.com. It is a website that plays a random zero-viewer stream on Twitch. So you can go support random streamers with zero viewers on Twitch. Uh, I'm going to spoil ahead of time that there are a lot of foreign language streams. uh, A lot of them. And WoW Classic just came out. So a lot of them are just like Russians playing WoW with zero viewers. Um, but it's really funny to go in there and see what random stuff comes up. Uh, and maybe you'll find someone you like. Who knows? Sometimes I just go randomly go dig at the bottom of Twitch directories and find people I really like who have like three viewers. Um, so I thought this was a pretty interesting site. Next up, episode 82 about Nintendo mobile games. Uh, we've been talking recently about Mario Kart Tour, which has been ramping up to a launch, and they announced a release date this week. It's coming out on September 25th, uh, and you told me before the show that you can go to the App Store and pre-order it right now. It doesn't cost anything, of course, because it is a uh, free-to-play game, and there are going to be a ton of microtransactions, apparently. Yeah, we literally pre-ordered it while talking to each other on the uh, off-record just like five minutes ago, literally. Yep, so there you go. You can go do the same. Um, judging by the opinions of some of my friends who are in the beta, it's probably not going to be great, but I'll <laughs> give it a shot. I've given all the Nintendo mobile games a shot so far, so this won't be any different. Next up, follow up on episode 91 with Yoko, uh, about Yokohama that we did with Maddie while Edukavie uh, was out at WWDC. Um, I'm bringing this up mostly because t- this morning it was announced that the next Yakuza game, which is going to be called Yakuza Like a Dragon in North America, will be taking place in Yokohama. Uh, so I'm very excited to have a semi-open world game take place in Yokohama because those do not come along very often. And... Uh, the Yakuza team has a very high degree of accurate recreation. So if that means I can get my Yokohama fix while I'm not there, especially next year during the Olympics, uh, I am all about that. Um, so there was a lot of excitement. Uh, Maddie and I being sort of the Yokohama ambassadors in our friend circles, uh, we got lots of excited messages today from people telling us, Oh my God, Yokohama and Yakuza 7. Uh, and we have been spreading the news to everyone, uh, including Shannon, who went to, uh, Japan with me last year and his, his girlfriend too. Um, he was also very excited to have the opportunity to revisit Yokohama yet again in a video game. Uh, I don't think they announced a release date, but um, I'm assuming it's probably going to be next year. Episode 107 was about my experience buying PlayStation VR and playing PlayStation VR. And this week I made a crazy discovery in Retro's most port that I absolutely need to share with everyone. And that is, I forgot that there are go-karts in Retro's most port. And you can play the go-karts in VR. And I greatly recommend doing that because it is the most fun thing I've done in VR. More than Astrobot. Uh, Astrobot is still a very great game and worth playing. But 
go-kart and GT Sport is fantastic because uh, as I think I mentioned on that episode, uh, I'm usually a bumper cam person. I like having an unobstructed view of the map at all times uh, or the course at all times. And you don't really get that when you're playing in VR because you're behind the cockpit of the car. And I mean, I love accurate recreations of car cockpits. And I was joking about doing car reviews. Uh, and I might actually do that at some point. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that would be funny to do. You and I doing car reviews would be, I guess, the funniest show on the planet. I know, that's why we have to do it. Having an unobstructed view in the go-kart is great. My chairs that I usually sit on here are very much like a weird like go-kart-y seat. Uh, so it felt like I was sitting in a go-kart and it was amazing. I was just racing around all of the nighttime Tokyo Expressway tracks and just like looking around everywhere the go-karts are not the fastest vehicles i have in my garage but i don't care because it goes fast enough uh, it's not like driving a little honda fit around it's like it's actually like fast enough to give you a feeling of speed and you get to take in all of the course around you uh one of the things is like because you don't have like stuff in the way to take your attention off of the track you notice like uh level of detail models flipping in uh while you're getting closer to stuff more than when you're actually behind the dashboard and all that stuff so if you have access to gt sport and a psvr headset definitely go buy a go-kart uh, i think they're pretty cheap too in the in the store uh, go buy yourself a go-kart go race a couple laps on whatever your favorite track is and you will have a blast guaranteed or your money back i need to try it next time i'm in town yes you do you were going to freak out. I, I was was spending five minutes just yelling like in excitement <laughs> because of how crazy this was. Um, so yeah, that, that was really cool. We're going to finish off my follow-up with uh, episode 117 follow-up. That was the episode I did about the bus network because a couple of things have changed since uh, that episode. So first of all, this week started out with a big bang. Uh, Estetiar bus drivers have released a public statement distancing themselves from the changes that were made because they were getting too much shit from users of the network and they were never involved in the making of them and they want everyone to know that they had nothing to do with it and they also disagree with the changes that were made, which is interesting. Um, so that was a funny way to start the week. Uh, they also uh, made some incremental improvements to signage. The signs in general for the uh, bus stops are pretty terrible um but one of the things that was really bad is that um some of the lines are significantly different during the day and during the nighttime and weekend schedule um and there was nothing to actually indicate if the bus stop you were standing at was actually getting served uh 24 hours well the entire day or only during one of those periods so they have added a nice little sun and moon symbol uh if the bus is only there during certain times of the day uh i figured this out for myself once because i took the four on a weekday uh on my week off and it turns out the bus line is completely different when it's not the weekend i didn't even know uh like there's one terminal that gets completely cut out from the from the bus line and the middle of the route is completely different and i had no idea um so it's very nice that they've done those changes to the signage in general it seems that they have tuned a lot of their data and a lot of the bugs that were inherent in the implementation of the transit app uh, integration have been fixed. So now transfers that were uh, like the five turning into the six before that continuity wasn't really understood by the system. Now it is seamlessly going into the next and the GPS data is following. So in general, if a bus is a seamless transfer at a terminal, 
it will still recommend the line to you in uh, in direction searches, which was not the case before. So a lot of the big bugs have been fixed, which is great. Um, they tuned the schedule for half the bus line so that bus travel uh, bus transfers that were getting cut off every single time or reliably are now more viable and don't bog down the network as much. So they've done a really good job. Uh, then last week happened. So last week, Sejepin University restarted, and today was the first day of school uh, here in the area. So bus usage has picked up quite a bit. But buses are still running within the tolerances of the network before the changes. Today actually went pretty smoothly. Buses were only running about four minutes late, and that's with the added load of students taking the bus, which is pretty good. Uh, express buses and numbered X buses were things that were sort of like up in the air as to whether or not they would be coming back once school resumes. Uh, express buses were these buses that would cross the city in sort of an X pattern where you could get diagonally across town in about 45 minutes with either one you could get there that was the 21 and the 22 um those are just gone like there's no replacement for them uh it seems that the new bus lines are good enough and have taken their place uh you just have to know which buses to transfer onto to get the equivalent thing the numbered x buses which were basically a way of making the regular bus lines run at a 15 minute interval during rush hours on school days those also appear to be gone for good so a little reduction in service quality for regular users because before you during like going to work and basically during commute hours you could take the bus at a 15 minute interval this is no longer the case which kind of sucks but i guess they were replaced with the return of school specific bus lines which were a thing back in our day uh when we went to school um for a while they sort of removed them and just made people take the regular bus lines uh and I guess their experiment, their experiment didn't go so well and they have reverted to school specific bus lines, uh, which has the main goal of connecting terminals directly to, uh, whatever private school you're going to. Uh, and it's supposed to take the load of students off of main commuter lines. I mean, this is good because it takes stress off of those other buses, but otherwise they're not very useful to adults. Whereas the X buses running at a 15 minute, minute interval benefited everyone. But that's sort of the state of things right now. Uh, as to the bus network here in Trois-Rivières, uh, I'm sure, like, right now we only have, like, one data point for, like, what happens on a regular school day. Uh, so it's not necessarily a pattern, uh, but I'm looking forward to finding out how that turns out over time, over the next few weeks. Yeah, hopefully we'll have to be, it will be the same pattern where they need to do a small adjustment in the next few weeks and then a month or two later, uh, yeah, it's nearly two months since the introduction. So, uh, at this point, uh, you were starting to say like, oh, it's getting more or less where they were saying it should get. So hopefully, um, around like maybe mid, uh, October to, uh, beginning of November, you might have those same comments again. I'm surprised though also regarding your comments about the day and night schedule that they don't have kind of night lines, literally with different numbers, different, like different, uh, theme of colors i know in montreal they kind of use uh black colors for all of those numbers i think they are in the 300 everything is 300 is considered the night lines yeah the old bus network used to have these they were the 80 whatever so if it was like oh, true if it, if you were taking the two it would be the 82 um they still have this they just don't put it on the sign which is dumb oh i see one of the things that was actually very confusing in the first week of service is Historically, the two has been, uh, has 
two directions running at once. You can take the De Sanctuaire and the De Pépineau. And on weekends, that was 82S and 82P. Now there's a bus that which is 825, uh, which looks a lot like 82S on the display in front of the bus, which means people were getting on the 825 thinking it's the 82S because they weren't aware of the bus line changes and then winding up in a completely different part of town at the wrong place, uh, which was less than ideal. Uh, but the 80 numbering is still around. They just have refused to put it uh, or mention it literally anywhere. Uh, it is not on the website. Um, it is just sort of buried and you just have to know it. And these signs are not really helping because they're putting a symbol instead of putting the number that is on the bus. Uh, so eh, it's kind of a, I mean, like, yes, you're correct. They should use special numbering if the line is functionally different. And they do. They just don't put it on the signs because they're stupid. <laughs> and it's not in the app either. Wow. So even at night, it says it's, it does say like two, three, four, like all the current the day numbers. Yep. So if you're trying to take the four home, uh, you have to know that you're looking for the 84. What's weird is the one exception to this is the 86, which is the night version of the six. I don't know why that one is on the signs. All the other ones are not. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I feel we'll have more, well, we will have some more follow up in the next few weeks about this. They should just hire me to redo all their signs because their new signs are fucking bad. Oh my goodness. I have been yelling about them ever since they went up and they're still ugly. Um, but anyway, this is not the me bitching about signage podcast. Uh, you have stuff to talk about. So let's get into that. True. Before I start with my two mini topics, I do have one element of follow up. And as you may know from previous episodes, I am quite, uh, quite the car interface uh, nerd and a lover. So, uh, I have an, a news that makes this an Apple music, which sounds weird, but it is not. So I don't know if you are not aware, uh, the Porsche, Porsche company, whatever you want to pronounce it, uh, is building an electric car called the Taycan. And they've released recently, uh, interior shots of it, which I would invite you to go look into because the interior of this is quite amazing. Of course, they're kind of a bit inspired by what Tesla has been doing with its car interiors. So there's a lot of screens everywhere. And where I bring this back up to some follow up is Porsche is to include the Apple Music app in its electric Taycan sports car. And I will have a link in the show notes for Mac stories. But all of this is say is it seems that one of the other avenue where Apple is trying to integrate Apple Music might be cars themselves. So the idea here is with the new infotainment system in the Taycan, you would have an app called Apple Music the same way you might have a, like a Sirius app or the FM app. Uh, it would just be kind of a different source uh, on your mode. And the integration seems quite interesting because they have a way for you to link your car with your Apple ID or Apple Music ID at this point here. Uh, and then I am not sure because it's, I'm not, I wasn't clear too much, but there's a way to do that kind of easily without having to log into your Apple ID through the car. So I think if I recall correctly, it, it is all done in the future, quote unquote, I guess, iOS app. Uh, that is to manage your car the same way that Tesla has app, as an app to uh, manage your car's charging status and all of 
uh, the other uh, stuff you can find in your car, like maybe remotely start DAC and all of that stuff. Also to note, uh, since I've been discussing a lot uh, about CarPlay, uh, it's unclear if it will include CarPlay. Uh, as far as I understand, the recent Porsche do have CarPlay, so I wouldn't be surprised uh, that it is included, but uh, it was not really featured on the screenshot of course a Porsche themselves they want to show their own fancy infotainment system and of course in those uh press shots you would see the uh music app inside the uh cars UI and not inside Apple's own UI so that's it for follow-up let's move to the first topic like I said in the opening I have two topics tonight and we will go through them in two reverse chronological order yeah We'll start with the oldest one, which was about episode 106, Barbaric Mocking Strategies. I would like to note here, because we'll talk again about the Final Fantasy uh, episode, but here this topic, I uh, this title, I came with the name throughout the episode without writing in my notes like some other co-hosts of this podcast do a lot. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. I, I take offense to a lot. It happened once recently, and it was last week's episode. <laughs> I would like to note that you said the exact defense in this episode, so I think recently means at least two. Uh, but all of this getting aside, uh, this episode was done in February, and it was again a follow-up on episode 55, which I was talking about my recent experience of using Swift as the main uh, iOS app language uh, used to develop apps. Uh, in episode 106, I did a three, more or less a three year review of it. And near the end, I was talking about the future. What would be my future using Swift? And I didn't, uh, entered at two things. Uh, one was Swift on backend and the other one was reactive programming or any of those frameworks. And I mainly mentioned RX Swift without giving too much detail about it. The reason tonight why I'll be talking more about RX than Swift on the backend is because in the last six months, uh, we work on a big project at work that is nearing completion. And this was one of our great opportunities for all the team, team members, including myself, to really put usage of all the training we did uh, at the beginning of the year and really use it and ship software with it. I shouldn't say ship because we still need to ship this big project, but I digress. So the idea here is now, like since we're nearing completion of this project, we're also trying, we're also sharing our knowledge of our experience with RX with our other iOS devs in the company. So we're kind of in this, I wouldn't say post-mortem, but kind of like this small reflection about like, where we should go with uh, our iOS development at work, uh, whether it should include RX or not, what are the other devs thinking about it, like what is our experience. So I kind of want to bring that back a bit around with some of my comments I made with it on the Surf episode and kind of like just go through some of them. I don't want to, I'll just give a quick summary of RX Swift, which I did not do in that episode, but I feel that RX to properly understanding, which I still like, which I figure at still at this point, I still don't, I don't, I'm not really grasp it, but there's still a lot unknown from me. Uh, so even when I'm trying to find those definitions, uh, it's quite interesting. So I'll do a small uh, summary of RX, but I will mainly focus on the, um, opinions that I have about it. So, uh, RX or reactive extension is really a name thrown around and it's been 
not popular, but he's known for at least, um, at least five to seven years from what I understood, uh, because it came from the .NET world. Uh, and the general, like, one-liner, I could say, from the .NET world is greatly defined in the Rx GitHub uh, documentation. And it, it says the following. Rx extension is a library for composing asynchronous and event-based programs using observable sequences and link-style query operation. So more or less what the the the, uh, the originator of Rx were thinking about is more or less three things. Any modern apps these days have async stuff or just, they say async stuff or event-based stuff. So more or less a stream of things that happens and you do something with those events or those things that happen on the stream. Then you can massage anything that happened on said stream with operators. Uh, operators could be like, I can connect two strings together, like upon one event to the event, and then I want to manage those two events together. I want to ignore some events. Like, I won't go through the list. There's a shit ton of operators. A lot of them are still trying to grasp, get a better understanding of them. But the idea is, there's a pipe, you modify what's happening on the pipe, and then you do something else. Last but not least, the last ingredient on that list of async stuff plus operators plus uh, schedulers, of course, because it's async, you might want to do that, uh, scheduled, all that stuff. Uh, of course, modern apps also need to work with threads and all that fun stuff. So you need to still figure it out. And more or less what the R- original Rx author on .NET were saying is the mix of asynchronous events plus operators plus scheduler is what encompasses uh, reactive extensions. So that's a lot of words to more or less say it's a stream of event that you can do a lot of fun with it. And you would be able to also go on the internet because you know what? Every time people were trying to explain me this in common words, it's always a bit of a, not kerfuffle, but it's, it is a complex topic. So tonight I don't want to re-explain the basic of Rx. So I would greatly invite you to go read about it on the reactivex.io website, which is more or less the open source community. Uh, it was a website where they show the goal of Rx, uh, the different implementation, because like I said, Rx was born on .NET, but we have, uh, there's like Java extension, there's Kotlin extension, there's Ruby, there's Python, there's Swift, which we'll talk about uh, tonight. Uh, and all of this also about, about the general concept of Rx and what should be common throughout those uh different implementation of reactive extensions but at a very high level and uh, intentional oversimplification you can think of it as a functional programming approach to event listeners yeah uh yet again it's using a lot of uh i agree with what you just said but you kind of need to bit what functional programming is but uh yeah yeah no i agree i mean you're, you're likelier to know what fp is than a lot of the words you've said in your explanation, like, out of context. That could be a good point. And I think this kind of brings me to my first opinion about it. And it's easy, what I've realized, and even in this episode, we, I said that a bit, is it's easy sometimes to judge it of being too complex. And I've seen different iteration of it, whether it's Rx, there's Reactive Swift, which is not exactly the same thing. Uh, they have kind of different... Uh, ideology to implement 
some of those same functionalities, same uh, patterns uh, would be the better word here. Uh, but what I find with RXs, even if they, let's say they would use the canonical naming for a concept or a pattern, I realize that sometimes this naming makes only sense if you have a somewhat deep understanding of what is RX, RX, like reactive extensions. And that's kind of why I wanted to go with this description of it. Because I feel that the way you get introduced to those topics, and even today, like I've wrote some streams, I've bind them to some UI components, meaning to make sure that automatically when something happens, let's say when I, when a state changes on an object, a button becomes enabled or disabled depending on the value of that state of the subject. Let's say, what would be a good example? Oh, yes. Uh, we have, uh, a till in, uh, our day to day life as a POS app. And this still can either be like opened with all the cache in it or literally like closed because you, cl- you did your end of day, right? So this register till status can be binded and then you can have status lights throughout your app that you don't need to really like always code the same thing. You can just like share one, uh, stream where every time somebody changes the status of that said till, uh, everybody listening to that state is listening at the same place and also reacting in their own way, uh, depending of what they want to show in the UI, whether it's like just saying the status name, like really open or close or really just have a, a green or red light. And all of those streams, uh, in theory, uh, are what makes those extensions so, uh, powerful. So that's kind of the, like I said, that's kind of the one liner on RxWeb. I would strongly invite you if you're been ever curious about what's happening in the kind of non-imperative world, the, like those, like those FRP people that not, not only like functional uh, programming that we, you can do on vanilla Swift, but like kind of the next level. Uh, I have two recommendation, um, that I've both uses during, uh, the past few months. The first one is, uh, again, I mentioned that in my past, uh, Coco, uh, uh Coco and Code, uh, episodes is, RayWandalik.com, uh, they are making a great, uh, documentation. We at work bought their books about RX, which I looked a bit. I also did some of their tutorials. And last but not least, I've read a lot from, uh, Casey's list experience about RX. Uh, he did a primer. I think it's a six part primer on RX. And of course, in the recent months, did a lot of comparison between RX and com- uh, combine, which we'll talk a bit later. Uh, but so yeah, there were, those two were, uh, impressive resources, uh, that helped me better understand while still like keeping, uh, my mind open about like this complex naming. I think, uh, a good example in Casey's primaries is trying to kind of vulgarize it in a way that maybe more imperative programming developers would know, uh, they would use like not the exact naming, but a naming that imperative programmers might know, uh, like say, oh, this looks like like what you used to do this way more or less, which that I liked a lot. Yeah, it's kind of weird because like a lot of the of the naming conventions that show up in RX stuff are come from like 
they sound bullshit when you actually like read the documentation and then you realize, oh, this is like some deep mathematical concept that I never learned because I'm not a mathematician. Um, and I feel like it's, there's almost a parallel to like learning kanji in Japanese where <laughs> you have to like memorize a trick to remember what the name of the function actually means. Like you have to come up with like little illustrations in your head of like, what the, what the fuck is a flat map? Like all of these things that you, have to sort of internalize or come up with mnemonics for otherwise like you're going to have a hard time adapting to it if you can't quickly remember these things a good example of that is let's say uh your stream of event is more or less what the user types and let's say for another reason the user types like really t-e-s-t the word test and then they um they remove a letter and then go back to the, they remove the last T and then they kind of bring it back. So of course you might not want, because uh, maybe this is a search field. So it wants to trigger a network request. Uh, you might not want to trigger every time the keyboard change. So you'll just like throw it down. You'll just like, say, like just notify me every like couple of milliseconds, just to make sure that if the user taps faster, you don't spam your server. But also you don't want to spam your server. If every time that the, the timer fires, it's always a word test, right? You don't want to send this request 10,000 times to a server. And the keyword to do that in a stream is say like, really filter out the events that are of the same value. It's called like distinct until changed. And that to me encapsulate the, the weird name. When you understand what it does, it's like, yeah, the naming makes sense. But then first look at it, it's like distinct until changed. Like, okay. I can understand what are two distinct elements. I'm not really sure what they mean by until change, but sure. But then you really need to go to the next level, learn and go see examples to get. And even that is not a complex mathematical uh, operation. So you can imagine sometimes what they would use as a name for those complex uh, mathematical, mathematical operators that Nick just mentioned. Uh, you could have funny names too. Yeah, definitely. Good. Uh, now... One of the points I want to mention that I realized throughout our experience was that Rx is a bunch of frameworks, especially Rx Swift. Uh, there's uh, Rx Swift, there's Rx Coco, there's Rx Relay, there's Rx Blocking, and then there's Rx Test. I'm not sure about Rx Relay and Rx Blocking because I know we also use other uh, third-party additions to Rx Swift. But in the general, like kind of main repo that is Rx Swift. There's um, multiple sub-framework depending on what you do. The, of course, the base is in Rx Swift, And the main reason I'm bringing it up is, in theory, uh, a lot of, the, not a lot of the work, but a lot of the stream, like a creation of the uh, stream or what they call an observable, is literally in that library. So I give you an example of a text field. I give I could give you an example of like changing the state of a button. So all of those elements where it makes... UIKit or Coco more reactive is inside uh, RxCoco. And that's what I, I realized is right now I've realized that most of the code we wrote is adaptation of stream of events from the lifetime of our app versus literally really rearchitecting our app to be more based on this concept of uh, asynchronous based observable sequences. Um, a good example of different, uh, a good example of different observable sequences would be 
a network call or just like a a push notification something that can comes in either once or multiple time or never and what i've realized is that a good example of that is before we were using a lot of kvo and let's be honest kvo is not the easiest uh, api to use especially to make sure that uh, you don't leak data all everywhere well uh, I- I would say it's easy to use it. Using it correctly is another matter. Oh, okay. Yes, I should have said correctly. <laughs> You're correct. Yes, yes. It's easy to use correctly. It is super hard to use correctly. And I think throughout the years, we've used multiple third-party libraries. And it's, it was kind of our, the part of our inception to maybe try our Not to say like, let's find for a replacement for KVO, but let's find a different approach to asynchronous things in our app uh we've been big proponents in the past of ns operation everywhere and after a couple of years like there's a lot of boilerplate code you need to do uh, when you want to ns operation everything um and some of that boilerplate bit us um a good example of that was there was a lot of boilerplate code to document what was the input and outputs of operation and especially the combination of like let's say i need to do operation b then uh, operation b needs to run after operation a completes and invalidates what's the output of that and it feels that naturally rx swift is built to do that with less boilerplate than uh, what we end up doing on top of ns operation yeah, I think the the text field example that you gave earlier, where like you're you're filtering for distinct inputs and you're coalescing your updates every like zero point two seconds or whatever, doing that repeatedly for multiple text fields would be a massive pain if you had to actually write the code yourself. Whereas I think RX Swift and RX Coco really sort of, I, I think that's almost part of the reason it took off is that it makes it so simple to do that you would be dumb not to do it. It is literally three lines of codes, especially with the special annotation that they like to do, but it's more or less like, here's my stream of event outside my text field. I want to throttle it every like X milliseconds, and then I want distinct event, and then you just handle it. Yeah, literally. it's not hard stuff. And I think like that appealed to a lot of people especially like let's be honest like probably startups who don't have very much time between their iterations and i think it's a very appealing thing for many people what i realized though if i were uh, coming back to uh what i was reading and when i was also discussing in this podcast um the app architecture book that was a different episode i forgot to take a note of which episode it was but it was literally i think a year ago that i read this book uh, there's an amazing good book from UpdateCD.io. Episode and, 94. Good. Uh, and they were talking about the feedback loop. And what they meant by the feedback loop is it is more or less the same code to apply your model to your view is, is also the same code that when your model changes uh, or when your model updates, it's still the same code that gets run to update your view again. Or when there's an interaction from the user that modifies your state, it's still the same code that again, applies this state back to the view. Uh, and I feel that with tools like Rx, this is more concise. I don't think it simplifies it in the complex, like if you have complex logic, but it makes it uh, more, 
that would be a bad way to say it, but more verbose, but I think it's verbose in a good way because it's, it does this, that, and that. And it's easy to read. Like, I felt that those modification, uh, even if you're not writing the code, like, especially when you're reviewing the code, this is like, okay, we're taking this event, we're applying this modification on this, on this event. Let's say we, we receive an object, we want to transform it into another. So we, we get a stream of strings to string of my object. It's a bad example, but I digress. Uh, and then I just do something else. Let's say I pass this string into a text, uh, a label. So I change, I go from, let's say, uh, uh, enum state to uh like localized string then it is binded to the label so every time my state changes my ui gets up to date every time my ui is created it is binded to the right place there's no two paths for this which is uh sometimes common with mvc which is a, a quick pattern to uh fall into on top of that i go go back a bit on my uh, kind of uh just more comment about uh rewriting the architecture so a lot of our common architecture in the app is still kind of quote-unquote mobile a modal uh, modal view controller my goodness it's hard to say tonight um like i mentioned in this uh app architecture but we are kind of this mvc plus c that uh the objective cio guys uh mentioned which is modal view controller plus coordinator which is more uh, more or less an object that coordinate navigation between screens uh, so it does mean that a lot of our event is still through this feedback loop with delegates, all that stuff. Hence why we end up using more or less the part where I have my model, I need to bind it to UI, and that's what we've done. We haven't done too much yet. Uh, kind of stream of events, like the whole, let's say the whole application or a portion of the application state, it becomes a stream where you can transform this state, this event on the stream of states into kind of the description of your view. I feel that it might come, but right now, even with our minimal usage of just like, I have my model, I want something to attach it, really to bind it to the view. I think we've been A, successful with it, and B, it kind of solves some of the issues we were having with just like boilerplate code of saying, okay, my model is updated, then I need to update all of those views with all of those property from the model. And also we're trying, to, we're starting to see how we can evolve our architecture with maybe more of an RX architecture, if I put this into quote. Uh, if you were to look at what it was shown in the app architecture book, that's when you start to use more MVVM. So model view, view model, uh, kind of approach where you have your model, you view, and then kind of something in the middle that, uh, mass massages your model in and then also attach directly to uh the view so we start to explore more mvvm approach uh too which by the way is kind of the the default like rx it is architecture in the windows world oh yeah, yeah. uh yes and also the full-on like you do rx like fully through your app or ios app is also assumed uh more mvvm so yeah, at that point, we're still like exploring there. Um, I feel that there's benefits to do it. And even in typical MVC, I feel that there's benefits where you would maybe do the binding yourself and updating to have a kind of a view model, a just small layer in between your, literally your view and your model. Um, 
I'm eager to see where we will be going with this because I also feel that there was there's some trade-offs, uh, but those trade-offs are mainly when you have to write this boilerplate code, and that's where uh, a library like RxCoco steps in for this. Uh, one of the issue we no one of the patterns we were including in our app is what I called uh, the provider pattern that was demoed, if I recall correctly, at CocoConf a couple of years back. And I forgot by whom, and I'm sorry, but uh, it is a pattern we learned there and we quite enjoyed. And the idea is to say everything that your models, anything in your app is dependent on. Um, and it's really especially useful for like system objects that are singletons. If it's dependent on, you kind of need to inject them and not rely on them being singleton to be injected because it makes it for implicit dependencies. And here we've been starting to build this kind of provider architecture, which is an object that provides things to other objects and also having an architecture, depending if you're just like at the app level or you're logged in or you're starting a sale and depending where you are in your state, a provider object might provide you with more things because you are in, uh, in the deeper state in the app. And what I've realized and some of my colleagues too is while this object is good, uh, we also realize that it sometimes conflicts with the view model itself. So you end up with a view that inject, that needs to be injected a provider object and a view model objects because they provide dependencies, but not in the same way or in the same kind of like ideal way uh, that those two objects were com uh, constructed. So that's kind of one of the first issue we encountered with uh, some of the not typical, but some of the improvements we did on top of MVC to make it more testable or just like simplify our lives and make it uh, simpler to rewrite uh, that we realized that, oh, you know what? It, it kind of creates this clash in architecture construction uh, versus what we were doing to maybe what we would want to do. Because it's kind of weird where you want to have like, usually my, all my objects, they just get one object in, in, uh, injected at initialization and now I need two. And kind of like downplaying the benefits of the provider pattern because you don't want to change your uh, init signature every time you need to add a new dependency. So that's why you were using uh, this pattern in the get-go. Uh, another comment I made in the original Swift episode was the, um, not worriness, but the um, carefulness about integrating third-party libraries and also relying on third-party libraries for your whole app architecture. I was going to bring this up if you weren't going to. And I'm eager to see how we were going to evolve this knowing that we're bringing a big third-party dependency component. I think my current opinion on that right now, it's a bit weird because I think I start to conflict it it starts to conflict internally with me, literally, with, <laughs> like me uh, complaining to myself. That sounds weird, but it's true. Of, I see so much of like so, imp so important benefits of using it. And maybe like, let's, like I said, we set an example, a replacement for a good KVO implementation. Uh, uh, could be a different way to thinking about are we combine operation one after the other and then combine the input of the output of operation and build kind of an operation graph where you start an operation, but in, internally it's like 10 operation and what you care in that UI is just like the output at the end. 
improving all of the all of the work and all of the boilerplate we had to do to do that might be worth it and that's why i say might because right now since we kind of dipped our toe uh and sadly dipping our toe means dipping your foot because uh those framework like once you want to just use it once in one view uh it's not like the web where you can just import it on that on that page you still need to import it for your whole binary and all of that fun stuff uh but it's also kind of a bug in the same way it's like you in your virus i think will be the better uh comparison so you import it then you're tempted to say oh i use it there but maybe i should use it there too and it kind of spreads it's uh, sunk cost fallacy Oh, yes, yes. It's like you've, uh, you've paid for it. And then now you say, Oh, if we've used it, then we should use it. And you know what? I think that's a, that's a constant trade off in not the type of product we do, but the type of development we do, which is more or less long term product development. It's like sometimes you kind of have to, to live with that fallacy of saying like, you know what? I know it's not maybe not the best thing, but it works. Literally it works or it was worth it for some benefits. Though you still need to stay uh, critical of it because you don't want to end up like three years later realizing like, oh crap, I still have an AF networking in my app, for example, which I might talk about, but I'm not <laughs> going, I'm going on a divergent top, but I already wanted to plug AF networking. Here. But but I do have like a, well, I, I guess the AF networking point is kind of related to this, which is like the elephant in the room is combine is coming. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. That was the next part, but I'm not sure again, but you're making the points in my list like one after the other. So that's good. Right. I, I don't want to like spoil whatever you have to say about combined specifically, but the point I'm trying to make is there's kind of a ticking time bomb on all of your RX stuff, because if it goes like most things have gone so far in the iOS development community, when Apple puts out the new shiny, the third-party alternative gets ditched like faster than it should because there are like the crazy Swift people who were using like Swift in production first year, uh, who are going to be like, okay, we're dumping all of our RX Swift people and we're going to work seventy hours a week so we can use Combine in our production application on year one, and like that's going to happen. And it kind of is unfortunate, but often the companies that do that kind of stuff are also sort of the companies that are maintaining RX Swift or whatever framework is relevant in this example. And then you've got this big third-party library in your application with orphan development. And the only people who are sort of developing for it are all of the companies that got screwed into maintaining it because the main maintainer ran away to go use Combine. And I feel like that's the main risk that's sort of facing your application. It feels... I, like, I don't say this to be mean, but to me, it seems foolish to use RX Swift this year. Like, I, I think you started work on this stuff a little bit earlier than WWC. We did, like, literally when I did the episode in February, uh, my, some of my colleagues started to introduce it the fall, so last fall. Oh, it was February? I thought it was later than that. No, no, no. It was the, the episode when I was talking about it in a bit in, in, in the Swift episode was we, one of my colleague was, did some experiment in the app, uh, um, like I was saying in uh, that episode, it was, I think he used reactive cocoa at that point. Oh my God. Uh, in a previous company. And, oh no, it's, I think it might be reactive Swift. I might be mixing up. I'm sure it was Swift for sure. Okay. Uh, but all of this to say, he was trying to see what RX was making because he went to a place where they made the other decision to use reactive Swift. And then we slowly, slowly, slowly uh, in the past, more or less 
eight months do that with the thinking. I think it answers your point. I think that's where we're saying like, you know what? We see smoke. Uh, we saw smoke last year on that topic, right? We didn't assume that Apple would do something that fast, but the general consensus last June when we saw combine was to say, you know what? It might be lost investment in RX itself. Yeah. But it felt and like literally I was watching the combines and I was like, hey, kind of reminds me of what I've just learned. Yeah, like the, a lot of knowledge will carry over. And that's where for one of the rare times, we kind of made this trade off of saying, you know what? Let's say we can use combine in two years. And that point could be still applied to uh, Swift UI, which uh, I just want to put that on pause. But uh, um, the idea was to say, what can we do to use those types of tools now versus when we're iOS 13 deployment target, which for us might be a year or two away. Yeah. And we kind of to come to the consensus that, you know what, we might have to live with those tools uh, for long and take that risk. Like we kind of did with F networking like literally six years ago. <laughs> because like putting on like my, my experienced developer hat, because I've like watched the Ruby on Rails community blow up in smoke and all of that stuff. Like I, I've seen enough of these, like sometimes you have to pay more attention to like the social situation around code repositories than the code itself. And like, especially with reactive whatever, we've seen the sort of transition between like, Reactive Cocoa to Reactive Swift to RX Swift to like, we've gone through three libraries in a year. This is like very bandwagony, like unstable. Like we're going to go to the next thing as soon as it's like shiny. Uh, it's like ADD, uh, approach to development, ADD driven development or something. Like, yeah, it's like squirrel, 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 squirrel everywhere. And like now that there's like an, an official first party solution to this, like uh, that's the risk that I see your application like winding up in is what happens in nine months or 18 months when like the maintainers have ran off to combine land and are never coming back and you are stuck with this thing and you can't ship an update to the app store because like something broke in ios 13.7 13.7 wow the verizon iPhone's going to make a comeback and it's going to yes. get a weird version number um I, I think right now we're training this off versus learning reactive programming and losing it right now. And you know what? I think we've might been personally and I'll say talk personally, maybe a bit more bullish on like, oh, no, 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 no. Third party libraries. Ugh, ugh. And I think also it's part of uh, our, the, yeah, it, it, we might be bullish because like we were like, oh, no, like let's try to minimize the number, the number of third party libraries. But right now, I feel that we are at a stage where we're saying, you know what? We want to see some of the benefits of what Apple might be doing, uh, helping us do in two years now. So we'll try, we'll take this trade off. And you know what? Worst case scenario, we'll make for good continents in two years on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it will. And that's kind of where we are right now with it, which brings me to this RX versus combined stuff. First of all, I feel that the community on RX is quite really uh, upfront. Uh, the, my colleague Laurence, who was the main, uh, introducer of it in, uh, my team, uh, is, I think, daily, like he stays on the Slack chat room for it, uh, and then Slack crook. And he's 
went there a lot to just ask random questions, whether it was his questions or just like stuff as a team we asked him and it was like, do you have an idea of this? He's like, nope. And he went ask them. So it was nice to see that still, still to this day, um, the community is still fully active and B, they're looking at it and like, you know what? Like there's nice things there. There's stuff we like maybe more than what we have right now. So I'm eager to see where it evolves. One from what he told us, I need to dig deeper on this in the next few weeks, especially when uh, the latest Xcode and iOS 13 goes uh, GA, is to see how RX continue to evolve because they're starting to look at how can we base our stuff on top of Combine. They're already starting to look into that, and that kind of reassures me to what you just said. Because it feels that they are already trying to make a migration path away from their custom code on and to Apple's code to say like, hey, you know what? Why are we reinventing the wheel when Apple is doing it already? Mm, my devil's advocate, like finger wagging, like th- comment to this is that's what Reactive Coco said, and they don't exist anymore, <laughs> or they they basically don't exist anymore. Yeah, like when Swift came, they were like. Oh, oh crap! We can tweak this to work in Swift, and then they did tweak it to sort of work in Swift. But everyone else got there first, and they sort of disappeared overnight. So yeah, uh, again, I don't know what else to say. Just that right now we're taking a trade off of, and I think you know what that was. Fa- that was a lot of trade off that people mentioned in the like in the like in the eat of combine and Swift UI and. All the fancy stuff that, like the diffable stuff that Apple added in iOS 13 is like iOS 13, and I don't want to go too book to our dub dub stuff, but iOS 13 allowed a lot of shit, literally a lot of good shit. So much that developers can't keep up, literally. Yes, and also a lot of shit that you might start to realize, especially now in there we're in August, uh, that people are like, you know what, it looks kind of a, a, a 1.0 like oh there's a bug like this and i'm sure it will, it's if it's going to be fixed and i feel that for both of them swift ui and combine so much has changed change in the betas that it looks like it's going to be a 1.0 so i'm not too worried the first year the same way that i am not too worried when we started to adopt swift at swift 2 because we might next year start to look at oh what's our transition plan to move away from rx and then go to combine and Maybe, who knows, maybe the community will have already done this because the, let's say, RX, I think we're at RX5 now, so let's say RX6 or 7 might just be a layer on top of what Apple is offering. So we'll just update and then voila, boom, we, for all the RX language, we're using their, like the uh, current code uses it and the new code will just use combine and slowly but surely we'll get rid of RX in the old places. Because that's always how simple <laughs> updates like that are. <laughs> But yes, yes. F- fingers crossed that it actually yes. works out like that. Because if it were, it would be really nice for everyone who's all the suckers who have to maintain RX legacy code. True. No, true. And I, I understand your point that there might be a bit of magical thinking uh, around just like, Hey, you know what? Like we, like we'll bite the bullet if something happens versus the cost of learning something new and then maybe improving our code base and finding the tool we were looking for for a long time to composing asynchronous events which is literally what we've been trying to do with other technologies for years and we tried something and it worked but it had disadvantages and as programmers we're trying to find a tool that is 
keeping the advantages but fixing the disadvantages. And right now, uh, our outcome of it with this first big project was to say, yes, there was bad stuff. Like we end up with a lot of memory leaks that we didn't understand and realize, <laughs> oh, we were doing this bad and that bad and learning how, uh, we were shooting ourselves in the foot with the current framework. Uh, but we felt that still the, at the end, when we look at each other, we're like, are we feeling good about this? The more or less answer was like, yeah, we were feeling good about this. We're not like worrying too much about the third party stuff going away. And we were a kind of confident of the future, which I think in the end is kind of a good note. Like that's part of the day to day job is to make sure that we're confident about what we're writing day to day. And that was good compared to some of previous snarky comments, uh, myself and some of my good friends and colleagues might have made too. Yeah, as annoying as I'm being throughout this episode, like, I, I, I am just as much in agreement that, like, what you're trying to do is solve an actual problem that is not a, an insignificant problem. It's like a pretty big problem for a lot of applications and it's a pretty pragmatic solution. I just like, uh, if it was up to me, I would not have gone with RX with combine around the corner, but that is like, if, if you think the trade-off is worth it, like that's your decision to make. I make plenty of weird decisions too. You know what? And no, but I, I like you kind of, um, your incentiveness or your incentive. I'm trying to find a word here, but what I'm saying is I, I like your persistiveness. That was what we're like con- conflicting ourselves with. Because remember, like we've been pretty like say like, you know what? We try to have minimal like third party libraries because we, I don't think we've been that bitten in the past. I make jokes about F networking because it's easy to make jokes about F networking. Like we're on like the 3.1.2 version for years and it still works fine and everything is fine. Like we haven't had to really go patch the library itself. And I guess at that point we'll just move to an SIR session, but that's, I digress again. Well, I, I think another great example from the early iOS development community was 3.20, and I don't remember what it was called afterwards. They renamed it. Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember 3.20. Yeah, yeah. But basically, it was like this super rich like layer on top of UIKit that gave you a bunch of features that weren't there. It was developed by the original Facebook app team, which the original Facebook app like was very, very good. Uh, since then, it's gotten pretty terrible. But yeah, like... If you built an app on 320, like eventually that thing got discontinued and you sort of got stuck with an app that you had to figure out how to implement a bunch of stuff that was not available to you natively in the operating system. And if you had grown used to that luxury, like you didn't have an easy way out. And like, luckily, like here, Combine is providing a first party alternative that is unlikely to disappear overnight uh unless it turns out like iCloud core data sync um <laughs> or iCloud uh cloud kit sync actually pretty is... much everything that was announced for iOS 13 <laughs> is not showing up after all so who knows but oh um, yeah, yeah 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 you've been difficult today but that's okay i like you still mm, yeah but my point is it, i wouldn't say it was a difficult decision but all the points you mentioned were brought up more or less as a team Good. It's good to know there are good people on your team. <laughs> oh, come on. You know that already. Come on. But like, no, more or less because like we were thinking about these already. And for this time, we were making, we were putting weight on different trade-offs. Fair enough. Sounds so good I to f- me. Yeah. I feel, you know what? I feel that especially this RX versus combine will continue to be a topic on this podcast 
in the next year for sure. Because I feel that once it goes GA, like I, most of the beta stuff I've done was around Swift UI, which you could say that IRX Coco and Swift UI are somewhat the same thing. Uh, it feels. I disagree with that. It, it, Swift UI is a lot closer to stuff like React Native and the Elm architecture true. than. What I meant by that is combine can attach to Swift UI versus combine cannot attach to UIKit. Whereas yeah. RX Coco can attach to UIKit. And that's where right now I feel I'm eager to see where it's going because that could be its saving grace is if you want to go full combine, either you have to write, rewrite combine Coco yourself or you need to use Swift UI and maybe using combine and Swift UI, like in the whole big product, that might be too much of an ask for certain teams. So that's where I will see this duality where it will evolve in the next few months. Yeah, I could see RX Swift, like the core library, basically going bye bye, no more, and RX Coco just rebinds to to combine events instead. And you mostly have what you need. Yeah, and maybe add some of the stuff that combine doesn't have versus yeah. RX itself. Pretty much. So that was mini it about my uh, RX update uh, and. W- which is also a Swift update, but that's too much a Swift itself update. Uh, I was surprised that we I had so much to say in the end, uh, but it is quite a, a nice topic that is uh, passionate uh, just in my day-to-day uh, dev life. Now I just need you to join me in the insane asylum and get on the Redux train. <laughs> that's a whole other episode. <laughs> no, 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 you need to start by saying I need, you need to join me in the insane train that is web development. No, you can use it in iOS. We did an episode about that. Oh, I forgot about this. I I did have an episode about that. I will link it in the show notes. Oh my god, maybe it's not. It's better for me to not remember about this. Okay, let's move to some of my notes following last uh, episodes, our last episode, and just to be safe, Phoenix. I'm sorry. I'll add some more editing work, but just in case I f over, uh, oh, I f- fucked up. Let's put uh, like a spoiler bell here. Fair enough. Spoiler bell is going to be happening in three, two, one. Welcome back. So, um, first of all, I think Yannick wants to start with some follow-up that we received that is really regarding uh, Final Fantasy VII. I think one of our listeners did a great post about his own experience doing Final Fantasy in our own episode. Yep, a uh, friend of the show, David Ashby, wrote a thing about our FF7 episode and his thoughts on Final Fantasy VII in his email newsletter. Uh, so we will put a link to that in the show notes. I actually knew that David was playing FF7 uh, earlier this year because around the time that I pitched the episode to Dakota V in the spring, uh, he had tweeted that he had started playing FF7 with his fiancée, Sarah, on a PlayStation Classic. Uh, and that's when I sort of told him, like, you might be interested in something coming out later this year. Uh, so I knew he would have it freshened throughout his episode, throughout the episode. And, uh, I sort of expected that he would have something to say about it. I did not expect like a several hundred word post about it, but that, that's great. It's what we love. I, I guess it's the same way we were not expecting to do our longest episode on this show on that topic, but that's true. I think the whole thing is worth a read, like, if you're interested in FF7. If not, you're probably not going to enjoy the rest of this episode anyway. <laughs> um, 
But uh, one of the things that I really like that David noticed is that the situation you're sort of thrown into as the player on disc one is as nebulous to you as Cloud's own state of being is throughout all of disc one. Uh, I didn't necessarily notice this parallel, but it makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. So I really did like him like noticing that and bringing it to my attention. Otherwise, kind of like the the big theme is that like ff7 is a collection of impactful and memorable story beats that's woven together by a robust but mechanically simple turn-based rpg and it seems to me that david thinks that the impact of the set pieces overpowers the occasional oddball mini game or the early 3d era jankiness that comes with this game uh and i think that's why it has sort of marked an entire generation our generation uh at least for people who played it while they were growing up. So that's more or less everything I had to say about um, David's post. Good. Which brings me to some of my follow-up. Uh, uh, which I can't is... fucking believe. <laughs> what? And no, I'm I'm thinking about what you're going to say ahead of time. Uh, oh, oh I, are you talking about my uh, FF10 story? Oh, no, but whatever. Okay. Go, go ahead. <laughs> so I really literally need to confirm the details. I sent a photo to Yannick. I went through my shit. And yes, I was correct in the episode. I literally have two copies of Final Fantasy X and X-2. I have the physical copy on the PS3. And I have the digital copy on the PS4. So I was able to look uh, while listening to the episode. I was able to look at uh, my uh, purchase history on the PSN. But I was, I'm sure I've seen a box of it somewhere. Uh, which I assumed was PS3, and I was correct. So that was funny when I sent the picture to Yannick. He's like, oh yeah, I remember seeing a picture a long time ago. Two other things, uh, quickly, uh, you kind of enlightened me with the start button as a pause button during fights. Oh my God, I use it a lot since then. <laughs> I don't know why, but while I was reminiscent of my first play uh, of the seven hours of the Midgard section, I remember at some point I bashed through all the buttons. That's why I discovered the... Um, Oh, the selecting? The selecting to yeah. show you where you are and stuff. So that's why I, you were surprised that I knew about it. But I forgot to mash the button in the fight mode and mainly because of the timers. Really, I saw the timers like, oh my fuck, I need to do something. Oh, yeah. So I did something. Also, I confirmed that uh, one of the side quests, uh, no, no, one of the side quests, uh, one of the quests you have to do, which is to dress up as a woman. Yannick was saying that you needed three elements. I can tell you in my save game, I only have fucking two. I only have the satin dress and the blonde wig. I look at my list of events. You can go in the menu and in the secret, I have the extra items. And I still only see those two. Hmm. So I guess either I lost one and I don't realize it, or... I only need two. Maybe. I don't know. I I was pretty sure you needed three, but whatever. Perfect. Maybe it needs to be a specific two, and I didn't have the right one, so I needed three. I don't know. Could be. Yeah, I, I guess that the third one made uh, was the right one for you to be picked by uh, the uh, criminal gang boss. Uh, I forgot his name. Uh, Don Cornio. Yeah. Don Cornio, yes. Uh, I'm really bad with, his name, with names in this game. I don't know why. I don't know why, but I memorize them very well, even though I probably shouldn't and usually have uh, have trouble remembering names for Japanese games. But there you go. Good. So at this point, right now, I've invested more or less the same amount of time that I did for the first episode. So I said that uh, to do the Midgar section, it took me about 7 hours and 20 or 30 minutes, if I recall correctly. I'm more or less at 16 hours 23. Wow. 
So I'm still haven't finished uh, CD one, which uh, Yannick <laughs> was kind to remind me that I should have asked him where was my status and not go to see walkthrough because the first thing I did is see the spoiler of this one, which I won't give to people at least even if it's spoiler section. Uh, like I said to Yannick, something happens. I kind of know that now it happens, but I want to know why. I'm so disappointed in you. <laughs> I know, but I was Googling and it's like, oh, crap. You know, when you Google something and it's like, you have the, the results. I was saying like, oh, uh, I think I Googled, where's the end of disc one in Final Fantasy seven? Oh, right? no. <laughs> yes. N- noob. Noob. You're I was such an idiot. <laughs> I know. Oh my god. And then it was kind of in the related links, you know, that is uh, 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 just like kind of indented to the right of it. It's like, oh, uh, something this happens. I'm like, ah, crap. (laughs) So this is also like one of the most famous spoilers in video games ever. Maybe even in like spoiler culture in general. So I'm not surprised you fell on it, to be honest. Because it's just, it's like people just will talk about it everywhere. That's what you mean. Yeah, it's like a catchphrase. Um, so yeah, like a lot of people know about it. Um, the other thing is, where was I going with this? Oh yeah. I used to have a friend (laughs) who had that as their domain name and use that for like their email address or like their IRC login thing. So like I, I, I knew about it a long time ago before I ever played FF7. That's quite mean. That's quite mean. Yeah. But all of this to say, something happens. Now I know what it is, but I kind of know why. Because like, let's say, let's say I fall away from my chair, right? I can tell you, Yannick, you know what? In three hours, I will fall out of my chair. You might ask me why, right? So it's a bigger spoiler than me falling out of my chair. Well, you can but... go play Theatrhythm Final Fantasy and see it in the background while you're playing a music game. Ah, that's what you were referring to in the yes. past episode. Ah, I see. I don't know who approved that, but there you go. Yeah, so now if you listen to this episode, you might want to go re-listen to our episode where Yannick said that happened. But I think he did enter that what happened there in that episode. So, oh well, I should have listened better. But all of this to say, one of the points that David mentioned in his post was that I was not really... So I was playing the game for the spoiler, right? Literally. Um, and that I was not sure about the story. What I've learned to realize in the last eight hours of the gameplay is more or less where you get the fucking backstory of everything. And then stuff gets placed uh, into the storyline. You understand where, where Cloud met with Seriphot, Sephiroth. And then you kind of understand the back, a bit of the backstory of everybody. And then that people should be not living and they're living. Let's put it this way. Um, so you want to understand that. And that part, I still want now, like, I'm super curious now to know, like, why is uh, Sephiroth trying, trying to take over the world? Still vague. Why? You just like say, Oh, I'm better than everybody else. I want to take over the world. And it's like, but like, why have you killed? And that's spoiler. I'm sorry, but why have you killed? Why is Cloud still alive when he was supposed to be dead the first time you like went like rage, rage quit on the world and then kill him more or less, right? There's those story points that now are like keeping me curious and keeping me going through the game because i feel that after the midgar section you did mention that that we are going through a typical rpg style game where you go on the like you go on the uh, world map and then when you go to world map you go to from sector section to section or like 
in this case villager to villagers and then when you go inside the villages you kind of kind of the the villages kind of become dungeons i would say uh and then you go to the next one because hey you know what sephiroth makes it does does a world tour for that part <laughs> of the of the cd <laughs> which you know what i'm kind of pissed because you know what like i've done that okay and then i guess it will be done there you know like we'll be like big spoiler no not that there we need to go to this other region of the map okay sure let's go to the other region of the map and then do all the shit there and that's more or less what happens in the section where i'm at is like you really leave midgar midgar you go out this village oh he was there but you missed him I'm like, oh, okay you do an, uh, you capture some things to go over the big other, uh, the desert where there's a big creature that kills you instantly and you go there and he's, oh, uh, you realize that he's so strong that he killed that said creature that you're not able to kill. So it's all of that fun times. But surprisingly enough, while I say it sounds boring and sometimes I'm a bit pissed, that's kind of what happened today. I really wanted to talk about all of that experience, but I was like, Man, I spent eight more hours on this. Like, can I get my spoilers now? That's literally <laughs> why I Googled it this morning. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So I guess I spent eight more hours on this game and then just Google it and then I still want to play it. Everything was ruined. <laughs> no, because I still want to play it. I that's guess, the, yeah. That's the weird part is it's still good. And I'm, and I'm kind of surprised because I remember how I left the past episode saying like, I am curious, but I'm not sure if I'll regret it. But the more I play it, the more the less I regret it. Yeah, they they have like struck the really good balance of like just giving you enough to keep you curious. Like Lost did this to a certain degree. Um, it just has that hook that keeps you like, okay, but what's next? Right, and I think it it is literally on the perfect line, or maybe not perfect, but sometimes it's a bit weird because uh, some of the like some of the mini games are like, oh, come on, why the <laughs> fuck do I need to do this shit and not follow the bad guy? So, do do you want like the explanation for the mini games? Because there is an explanation for the mini games, I guess. So this is like a weird change in direction that they made around the time of FF Seven. Okay. Where, um, I don't remember if it was Sakaguchi or, or if it was Nomura who decided that like Final Fantasy games have to be for everyone. There has to be a little bit of something for everyone because they were becoming like these mainstream RPG games mm. that just about everyone was picking up, at least more so in Japan than here because generally we had more restricted access to the Final Fantasy series here in the West. So they wanted to inject more stuff that would appeal to a wider range of people, which like, it was kind of ahead of its time in doing that because now it's sort of the thing to have weird mini games in your game. Like the Yakuza game that I talked about earlier has like, you can go play Mahjong and you can go play old arcade games. Like there's a bunch of shit you can do that is like pretty much unrelated to the main game. Yeah, the latest GT were good for this. Yeah, it's just there to entertain you. And there is some very ser- serious stuff in Final Fantasy VII, and sometimes you just need to have like that off time between two story beats to just go snowboarding or race chocobos or whatever the fuck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. Okay. That, that that makes sense. One other thing I do want to point out because I've been playing a lot of Square games this year is there are a lot of weird experiments in. Well, to be honest, a lot of Square's games that came out during the uh, the, the PlayStation era that sort of were prototypes or just like 
we need to learn how to use 3D hardware because we've never made a 3D game before. And the way we're going to do it is by making a really terrible motorcycle chase thing <laughs> or by making a snowboarding mini game. And this was how they learned to develop for the PlayStation. And then like, if you've done the work and you also want to have like little mini games to entertain people, like why not just take the ones you took? And I think like the one that stands out the most to me, I don't know if it's in disc one is the Chocobo racing. I think it's in the gold yes. saucer, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a gold saucer. Yes. That has the most ridiculous UI I've ever seen for a racing oh, thing my ever. Goodness. You kind of need to... There's an automatic mode, then there's a button to go manual to accelerate or decelerate. There's kind of a, like, kind of, like, like I don't know what to call it, but a kind of a gauge that is for, like, not tiredness, but kind of, like, energy of your chocobo. It was weird. But the thing to me that stands out the most is, like, I'm pretty sure even in the English version, the UI is bilingual because they didn't want to have to translate it. Uh, yes, you're correct because it's assets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think at that point, my iPad had to be in English for work reasons. So I, then I forgot to put it back in French. So I, I was playing in English and yes, it was... Uh, it's both in, in English and Japanese. Yes. Yeah, which is kind of weird. Um but yeah, like th- there's a lot of square wackiness. And I think that's one of the reasons I was actually drawn to playing square games on the PlayStation this year is there's a lot of weird shit the square did on the PlayStation. That's really interesting. Um, like, like I mentioned at the start of the episode games with Yokohama, like racing lagoon is a racing RPG in Yokohama. Like that's fucking fantastic. It would never come out today. Um, but it's awesome. There's a bunch of games that I've played that are like weird action RPGs that have nothing to do with any other square games. And there's just a lot of very good, like experimental value in these mini games that is sort of reflective of everything else square was doing aside from the final fantasy series that sort of made you curious what their other games was were. So yeah, that's mainly what I had to say, uh, following that. I wanted to know, lastly, uh, if you continue to play the game, because as far as I understood, you did not. No, uh, I am waiting for a copy of Vagrant Story to show up in the mail, uh, which is the next RPG I'm going to be playing on the PlayStation. Okay, and were you completed with your playthrough of Final Fantasy VIII? No, I finished disc one, and then I put it to the side. I am huh. very interested by FF8, it's just... Like the the thing I realized, and I sort of posted about this on a forum yesterday, is that in a month I can only get about fourteen hours of gaming in reliably. And the problem is, when you buy a bunch of games that are several times multiples of that, <laughs> it doesn't progress very quickly. And since like my main goal for the year was to sample a lot of different uh, Square RPGs. Like, I know I'm going to enjoy FF8 mechanically because I already have for the first, like, 11 hours or whatever. And I know that I am very aesthetically drawn to FF8's environments and all of that stuff. So I know, like, this is a quality thing, but I just need to be exposed to more weird stuff because this is kind of half enjoying myself playing video games and half research project. Right, Um, right. So I need to get more of the research project juice out of that. Um and that's why I'm like, uh, I got like Final Fantasy Tactics and Vagrant Story in, uh, well, I'm waiting for Vagrant Story, but I got FFT in recently. 
and I was going to play the demo of Saga Frontier earlier and stuff like that. Like, I, I'm trying to get exposed to lots of mechanics and stuff like that because I am trying to st- kind of study what makes a good RPG in hopes of maybe making one. So, ooh, yeah. Okay. Uh, the main reason I was asking is whether we will follow up. I don't think we will. I think the next time I'll just say, like, hey, I know why this problem happened, and that will be it. Uh, but... I think last but not least is again, I'll re-mention it again. And I guess you can say, Yannick, you were right again, but the fact that is on iOS, I think is helping me just doing it because literally I played a lot of time while I was in my family law, which is, uh, literally, uh, in the countryside. So sometimes I don't have to look at Twitter. I cannot look at Twitter, uh, because the network is shit. So I just play Final Fantasy. So that's why in the past few weeks, I've played it a lot because during the weekends, I am in the countryside doing jack shit. So, uh, and I should enjoy the countryside view, which I kind of do. Uh, but also sometimes I'm bored, so I want to do stuff. So that's why I've been doing that a lot. And I've been looking at doing kind of offline stuff because sadly in that part of the land where my family lives, the network is quite bad. So, uh, this gave me some quite nice time to play Final Fantasy or watch WWDC video or some of my YouTube queue, but in the past few weeks, I've decided to do that, and that's quite nice. If it were, like, in front of my console, that would have been not great. Yeah, what's actually pretty interesting right now is I'm having the yearly dilemma of trying to figure out which console I'm bringing to Japan with me, if I'm bringing the Vita Ooh. or the 3DS. Um, and traditionally, I've either brought both or just yeah. the 3DS, I assume you would brought 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 both, yeah. or at least at least the 3ds. Because if I want to understand, like you've played more Japanese game on the 3ds than the Vita. Um, I well, right now my English Vita is dead, so oh, I can only play Japanese games on my Japanese account right now on my Vita because it's I only have my Japanese Vita left. Um, but yeah, usually I brought I pretty much always bring 3ds because Japan is street pass land. Uh, there is like I just go to the grocery store and I max out my street passes so it's like <laughs> it would be dumb not to do it um, but now the switch is out I'm not sure how much of a factor that is um, like the, the switch isn't real well th- until the switch light comes out the switch isn't really being used as a handheld in Japan much so it's kind of weird to see if they're going to be using 3DS or switch more um, this year and I've been enjoying the hell out of Fire Emblem Echoes every morning on the bus. Uh, so uh, assuming I don't actually beat it before I go to Japan, which is entirely possible, it would kind of be nice to continue playing that. But at the same time, like I haven't played my Vita in a really long time and I have a lot of Vita games to catch up on and I should probably do that. And less charging cables to bring because of the stupid plug on the, on the 3DS being weird and stuff like that. So... I'm thinking I'm going to go Vita this time. I still have like 20, well, 2,000 Japanese yen or so on my uh, prepaid card that I can use to buy like PS1 games and stuff. So I might do that. I was thinking maybe I'll just get Final Fantasy 2 because I'm very interested in Final Fantasy 2 as well. Um, So I don't know. It's all over the place right now, but uh, it's a fun time to be playing video games. Good. So I guess that was I guess that was it for Final Fantasy the uh, kind of follow up. Yeah, if you enjoyed this double feature, uh, you can go find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net/slash/120.
Uh, you can find all of the episodes of our show at limitlesspossibility.net, and you can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Nicolivier at Luconosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.